Amen. And you may be seated. When I first began to uh, interview with the first church that I pastored, I began meeting with what's known as a pastoral search team. And uh, the um, pastoral search team was really made up primarily of deacons within the church. And as we began to meet, they had a lot of questions for me. I had a lot of questions for them. And one of the questions I asked was this, was, apart from Christ, who holds authority in the local church? Now, the reason I was asking that is because I knew that there were bound to be disagreements between myself and this board of deacons. And uh, so I wanted to know if we came to a point where we just could not agree, came to a point of an impasse, then who was going to make the final decision? And really to my surprise, the answer of that team almost immediately was, well, the pastor, of course. We have absolutely no problem with following authority. Now, I don't know if it was just me being optimistic or me being an idiot, but I believed them. And uh, I said, okay, that sounds great. And so it didn't take long at all before we began to really clash, myself and them, and, and have a lot of different disagreements. And I began to learn what it meant to compromise. Uh, that is to not get what it is that you want, and, and especially in areas of really just just kind of um, own personal opinion and taste issues. I realized that those issues, I just had to give to them and let them win on that uh, because there were other areas, biblical areas, that I believe where the Bible spoke very, very clearly, and those issues I could not uh, bend or break in any sh way, shape, or form. And so there was one issue almost just a week into uh, my, my pastorate. So the honeymoon was over pretty quick, let's say that. And uh, they came to me, and there was an issue that they said, hey, we want to do this. And I said, that is unbiblical. We cannot do that. And so immediately there was tension. Things immediately began to fall apart. And that was the beginning of the end of my pastorate there, me getting fired and getting canned. And I know that that encourages you that I'm here pastoring this church after being fired from another. Um, but, but that was the beginning and the end. And so clearly in all of that, they were not okay. They did have problem with authority. And I say if I kind of wrap my time up there at that church, this is what I would say. They were right. People have absolutely no problem with following authority as long as authority does exactly as they want. And that's not only true for them. It's true for all of us. The truth is we just don't like to be told what to do and when to ultimately do it. It's why we say things like, who do you think you are? Or what gives you the right to tell me what to do? Or who died and made you God, right? And so those are things that people will like to say. And, 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 and look, we, we get this, honestly. Uh, our parents pass this down to us and their parents and their parents, all the way down to our original parents, Adam and Eve. All of us are from that same line, same beginning of mother and father and and, 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 and literally, this problem is the oldest problem in the book, literally. And in other words, when you go back to the book of Genesis, you find that the original sin was rebellion against God's authority. God said, don't eat, and they ate. And so that then, at that point, sin crept into the world, and that sin nature was passed down with a, with a desire to rebel against authority was found in every single one of us. So when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that changes even though we still struggle with submitting to Christ, overall, those bonds were broken so that now we can obey. What happens is we place our faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, of his death, of his burial, and of his resurrection. But a demonstration of that true saving faith is that we are repenting, we are turning from our rebellion, and now kneeling in submission to the person of Jesus Christ and his lordship. 
Now, why do we submit to Christ? Well, Jesus Christ said himself, because all authority has been given to him on, in heaven and on earth. He holds all authority over everyone and everything. And so what Luke is going to do now at the end of chapter 4 is he's going to give us a picture of his authority. And specifically what he's going to do is he's going to show us different types of authority that he held while reigning here on earth and now reigning in heaven. So before we take the Lord's Supper, I want to identify these different types of authority that he has. Number one, I want to recognize, we want to recognize Jesus' teaching authority, his teaching authority. Look, if you will, beginning in verse 31. It says, and when he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed, what? Possessed authority. Again, we see that it was Jesus' regular uh, practice to meet corporately in worship. It was his custom. It was his habit for every Sabbath day for him to enter into the synagogue and he would begin to teach. Now, those that heard Jesus teach they really begin to sit back and they were amazed by what was coming out of his mouth because they said that he was teaching in a way that they had never heard. He was teaching as one with authority. Now, to understand that in their amazement, you have to understand how, they, how rabbis normally taught during the day. And, and, and what they would do is this, is they almost never taught the scriptures. So they would get up, they'd read a scripture, they'd sit down, and they'd begin to expound on, that, expound on that passage of scripture, giving explanation and application to the life of each individual. And when they did it, they almost never uttered an original word or thought of their own. Instead, their entire sermon was based on quoting other rabbis, great rabbis, famous rabbis who lived before them. This is their way of authenticating their teaching and showing authority by, what, by referencing to other rabbis. And this is similar, by the way, to graduate school. If you ever go to graduate school, basically what you're going to find is, is you're going to write a lot of papers and you are going to do a lot of citing, and you're going to give a lot of footnotes, all right? Uh, you are going to write, and basically everything that you're going to write has got to be based and backed up by somebody else who is an expert in that field to show that you're not making this stuff up. Trust me, it would have been much easier if I could have just made it all up. But what happened was I had the rude awakening and made the mistake of actually inserting my own opinion in one of the papers that I wrote, and I'm going to read for you the response of that professor. Are you an expert in this field, Mr. Kwiatkowski? No, you are not. Do you have your PhD? No, you do not. Does, and no, no one wants to hear what you think. Nobody wants to hear your opinion. If you don't have your PhD, then you must cite someone who does. You cannot make a statement of fact unless you cite it with someone who has authority to do so you do not. Now, the moral of that story is, if you have low self-esteem, you may not want to go to graduate school, all right? <laughs> but this is precisely how these rabbis were working. They were constantly quoting people before them. In fact, one ancient rabbi said this. He said, I have never in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. Well, this is we understand that. Then we understand why this is so radically different when Jesus comes on the scene, because when he comes, he cites no one. When he comes, he doesn't reference anyone. He has no work cited. He has no bibliography. He has no endnotes. He has no quotations. He just comes and he speaks and he teaches as though all of this originated with him. 
my brother and sister-in-law, they attend this church, and uh, Billy Ray and Alicia Watson and all their, their, their minions, all their kids as well, and uh, they've got eight children, and my niece is a nephew, and they're wonderful. And, uh, and, and they recently, during COVID, they decided there was kind of lockdown and job stuff and everything else. And so they decided that they were going to go out west and go on a family vacation when everybody was locked down. I thought, that's a brilliant idea. So they were going around all of the west, and, and they were traveling around, and they came to Idaho. I don't know how in the world they ended up in Idaho, but they ended up in Idaho. And there, they went to a little town. And the reason for them going to the town is because that's the town where a movie called Napoleon Dynamite was filmed. Now, some of you know that movie, some of you don't. Sounds like a lot of you do, shame on you. But anyway, a lot of you do. And so they went to the town, and their whole point was to go and get some pictures. So they wanted to go to Napoleon uh, Dynamite's house, get a picture, uh, take some selfies there, then go to Pedro's house. And, and, and they wanted, but first they wanted to go to the school where it was all ultimately taken, you know, all the, uh, everything took place. So they get out of their van, they all jump out and everything, and, and they're all taking selfies and taking pictures. And with all the kids, it took like six hours to take the pictures in front of the school. And, and, and they're out, and then all of a sudden, this man with a beard approaches them. And he goes, hey, are you guys here for Napoleon Dynamite? Because it was filmed here. And they go, yes. He goes, well, I'm Jared Hess. He goes, I produced the movie. And they said, really? He goes, yeah, this is my wife. Both of us wrote the movie, and I ended up directing it. And so they begin to talk and begin to talk. He says, well, this was the inspiration. We had a lot of things in our life that happened in the school, and that was our inspiration for writing it. And we live in California, but now we've come back, and now what we're doing is our, our child is old enough to be in high school, so we're registering from the school. We want them to have the same experience that we did. And they said, just talking with them, now stop and think about it. They could have jumped out of that van. People could have come up, and some irritated Teacher could have come up and go, are you here for Napoleon Dynamite? Yes. Well, okay, take your pictures and then go. Or somebody could have explained to them like a tour guide of what was happening, talk about the author, talk about what the author did, talk about the author's inspiration. But this was all completely different at a completely different level because this wasn't somebody who was talking about the author. This was the author and the creator and this is precisely what happens when Jesus comes on the scene. Everything that he said was original to him. He didn't need to quote an expert. He didn't need to quote an expert because he was the expert. He wasn't talking about God. This was God talking when he, when he was speaking. And so this is the authority that he had. That's the difference. That's why they were amazed. Big difference to referencing something and being the original source of it. And so we see there his authority in teaching, but we also see his authority in exercising. So exercising authority. Now, it's not exercising. We're not saying Jesus was good at Pilates. That's not what we're saying. That would be unbiblical. And uh, exorcising, what we're saying is that Jesus held the power over the demonic world, over the spiritual world, that he could silence demons and he could cast them out from people that they were ultimately oppressing. And this is what we see unfold beginning in verse 33. Note, if you will, and in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God but Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done no harm. He says, And they were amazed and said to one another, Now know, what is this word? He said, For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Now what exactly is happening here? 
Now, the, the reason I ask that question is because there are some who explain this passage away and say there's nothing supernatural. There's nothing demonic happening on here. This is just in ancient times. People were superstitious. They were mystics. And so if anything was off or crazy happening, then what they would do is they would just chalk it up to demons when really all this is, is this is, psycholo- this is a psychological disorder. That's all that's going on. But that's not what the text suggests at all for many reasons. First, the demon knows and identifies who Jesus is. And remember, up to this point, nobody seems to be able to figure it out. Jesus is speaking with authority. He's performing miracles, and people are scratching their head and go, I knew this kid when he was little. Who is this? this is, isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this Jesus from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So they're not to be able to identify who he is, but the demon instantaneously recognizes Jesus for who he is. He is the Holy One of God. The second reason I believe it was an actual demon is simply because the demon was doing what demons do best. They were seeking to harm this man, both physically and spiritually. And so here they are. And and remember that what the scripture says is that our enemy, our enemy is not against flesh and blood. Uh, we understand that when we get angry with people sometimes that, 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 that we're, we're, we're not angry with them because, because of, of what they necessarily believe, but because of what they've been influenced to believe. There is spiritual warfare going on. The scriptures tell us about that. And so we, we, we see uh, this different type of thing. And so the idea there is, is that he was demon-possessed. He was trying to cause him harm. Christ doesn't allow him to do it. Uh, and then there's a third reason, I think, as well, and that is their fear when they recognize what Jesus had come to do to them. Uh, it says there, it says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Yes, that is exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to strip them of their power. People who do not know Christ are under the power and then the influence of the king and the master of this world. So he has come to deliver them. In fact, if you remember Jesus' message, when he, when he was talking about prophesying about why he had come in the temple, he began to quote from Isaiah. And here's what he said of himself. He says, he has, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So this man was oppressed by demonic power and Jesus' authority came to set him free. So again, the question for us then, I think this is the first question that comes up when we read passages like this. It's probably not the question we need to ask, but it's what we're most interested in, is can people still today be possessed by demons? The answer to that is, I think so. I think absolutely. I don't think there's anything in the word of God that would suggest that a person that doesn't know Christ could be possessed and influenced by a demon in much of the same way that we read here. In fact, Paul warns us in Ephesians 6, 17, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So certainly I believe that that can take place here. Uh, uh, There's been different stories that I can share uh, as being a pastor, and especially being in foreign lands, that things were really off and really weird. Uh, Even in Jacksonville, Florida, there was a weird experience. And I don't know, demon or not demon, but it was weird. I was sitting in a waiting room. I was waiting uh, on something. And as I was waiting there, a lady sitting across from me is rocking back and forth, just staring right into my eyes. And I'm like, I don't feel comfortable with this at all. And so, and then, and then it became even more uncomfortable when she says, I know who you are. I know who you are. And I wanted to stand up and say, my name is Mike. Oh, you already knew that. I'll sit back down. Then she, then it really got weird because at that moment she turned and she says, I know whose you are. I know whose you are. 
of that moment. Now, was that mental illness? Was that demonic? I don't know. Was it a combination of the both? I don't know what it is. But I think the Bible certainly says that it can reel and it happens. Now, the question for us then, I think the next logical question is, why don't we see more of it occurring? First of all, praise God that we don't. Do I have an amen? But why don't we see more of it happening? Uh, For example, in the time of Jesus, it seems like every time he turns around, there's some demon spouting off something to him. He's having to tell him to shut up. It happens here. And then at the end of this text, he's doing it again at the end of the day. So why doesn't it happen more? Let me give you two reasons why I think. One theological, one practical. I think the theological reason is because, again, of why Jesus came. When he came, the demons knew very well that he came to ultimately destroy them. If you have an enemy, your greatest enemy, you are going to get all of your troops to do what? Attack that one enemy and focus your efforts there. So I think that this is why we see so much demonic activity when Jesus comes, because they're trying to undo what Jesus Christ has come to do. I think the practical answer, that's theological, I think the practical answer of that is just simply that even though at that particular day there were so many people The world has now got so many more people in the world, but the number of demons are the same. So there were same number there, less people. Today, way more people, same number of demons. So it could be they're spread out a little bit more. Maybe we don't see that activity as much. They're not omnipresent. They can't be everywhere at once. And I think this is especially true in foreign lands, especially where the gospel has not gone. So, so places of darkness, people where people are spiritually oppressed, they are in spiritual bondage. Missionaries quite often who go to those places talk about a very evil, wicked presence there until the light of the gospel comes and there's nowhere else for them to hide and people begin to be delivered. So I think that that's two of the reasons why we probably don't see it as often. Well, then the question then comes is, well, Pastor Mike, why don't we talk more about demons and demon possessions and things like that? Well, just as it would be a mistake for us not to reference it, it's coming up in the text, so I'm referencing it and talking about it. It'd be a mistake to ignore it and act as though it doesn't exist. It's also a huge mistake to make more of it than what it actually is, to give more credit to demons than what they should actually get. And and I know folks like this. I've met different believers that seem to be transfixed with the satanic things with things of the devil. In fact, they see the devil in everything. I don't know if you've met somebody like this. Their car breaks down. Bro, you got a devil. There's a devil in that engine. You know, they get sick. Oh, it's got to be a demon. It's a demon. Hey, my football team is lost. It's got to be a demon. And if you're a Jaguar fan, there's lots of demons running around. (laughs) We don't need a new quarterback. We need to exercise the demons, right? That's what we need to get them out of there. But there's always that. And one of the worst mistakes that we could ultimately make, I think, is this, is for us to be able to blame and have someone or something to blame on our own rebellion against God. We're going to say the demon did it or whatever, and, and that can't possibly happen for a believer in Jesus Christ. Here's why. Because a believer in Jesus Christ cannot be possessed by a demon. Why? Because once you are saved, the Holy Spirit puts a little sign out that says no vacancy. He says, I live within you. And greater is he that is in you than he that is ultimately in the world. Now, can they, can they oppress in certain ways? Yes. Can they tempt in certain ways? Yes. But even there, they can only do what Jesus allows them to do by his own authority. Well, why would Jesus allow them to give us a hard time to begin with? Because whereas the devil is seeking to tempt us to sin, God is using the same temptation as a test for our faith to refine our faith. And so this is what God would ultimately do. The emphasis there, and and we could talk about demons, but we're going to miss the point. I don't want to miss the point here. It's not about the the demon's ability to control us. 
It's about the authority and the power of Jesus to control demons and to free us from their control. He has authority over the demonic. There's a third thing that we see here, and that is that we see Jesus teaching authority. We see his exercising authority, and we also see his healing authority. After Jesus teaches and after he casts this demon out of this man, he, he, he basically leaves the synagogue, leaves church that day, and he goes and does what you and I are about to do. We're going to go and rest and we're going to eat, right? So he goes to Simon Peter's house, and when he goes there, um, there's kind of some disturbance there because they find out that Peter's mother-in-law is, is not well. In fact, he says here that he has a high fever. That's Dr. Luke's way of saying that this wasn't just like a, a little headache. She was severely, severely sick. So people begin to plead with Jesus to do something, and he does. He, he answers their pleas. In verse 39, it says, And he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose, and she began to serve them. So by including this miracle within the story, have you noticed it's kind of like a hodgepodge of little stories? By sticking them together, Luke is trying to tell us, A, that Jesus has all authority and power in the spiritual realm, but he also has all authority and power in the physical realm as well. That's, when he, that's what Luke is telling us when he puts those two things together. So a natural question that's gonna come up for us is this, is does Jesus still perform healing miracles today? Absolutely, absolutely. Jesus can heal anyone, anywhere, at any time, in any place. He's got the power and he's got the authority to be able to do it. In fact, you and I, it would be right for you and I to pray for those who are sick, to pray for those who are physically suffering or, start, or, or dealing with some other uh, physical ailment. For us to pray, that would be the right thing to be able to do. There's no doubt about it. But the question then is, if that's true, then why don't we see as many miracles today as we do written in the Word of God? There are a lot of people that read the Word of God and they think, well, that must be normative. I mean, look at that. That's, that's just happening all the time. So it should be happening all the time now. But if you're just honest, you can clearly see that these types of supernatural miracles are not happening on an everyday occurrence as they were in the time of Jesus. And so what is the answer for that? I think there's two primary reasons. Number one, the miracles were a sign to let the world know that the kingdom of God had arrived. So Jesus wasn't going to heal everybody, by the way. Don't, don't, don't think that. In fact, we saw that with Nazareth. He, he, re, he, he um, completely rejected uh, the opportunity to heal anybody in Nazareth uh, at that particular point because he knew that what it would ultimately do to them spiritually. So he doesn't heal everybody, but the healings that he does is letting people know the kingdom of God is here, and it gives us a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will ultimately be like when it comes to fulfillment when it's at its peak. Revelation chapter 21 and verse four says that one day he will wipe away every tear from your eyes and the death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Amen, amen, and amen. Second thing is not only because of the kingdom of God ushering in, but also these miracles authenticated the message that he and his apostles were preaching. A lot of people were coming and saying that they were Messiah. A lot of people were coming and giving news and saying that this is the truth that everybody needs to hold. So there had to be a way that this would sep apart, separate, separate from other people. And so what they do is he comes with these miracles so that the, the unbelieving Jew de demanded a sign. Here's their sign. Now, I, I had referenced this two weeks ago. If you remember, I, I told about the lame man 
who, whose friends uh, basically ripped off the top of a roof to be able to lower Jesus down or lower the man down in front of Jesus. And there he lay, unable to walk. Jesus, seeing his need, but seeing his greater need, sits there and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody in the place just erupts, right? They're just really like, who are you? What authority do you have to tell him that his sins are forgiven? And Jesus says, well, what's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to tell you to take up your bed and go and walk? Well, the answer to that is, is a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't see that, right, immediately. You can see if a person has the ability to walk, but he responds so that you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin. Take up your bed and walk. And he did. It was evidence that what Jesus could do for somebody physically by bringing healing, that he could also do spiritually on that day. So these are the reasons why there was so much going on in that time, so much supernatural healing occurring. And so when he tells them that, listen, so the question then is, does Jesus still heal today? Yes. But much of the healing that he does, even though there are miracles that he can perform, we're not denying that at all. He can do whatever he wants. You might know somebody who's performing an actual miracle, but the majority of the time that Jesus heals, he doesn't use supernatural means. He uses natural means. He uses doctors and nurses and, and, and different treatments and different medications to be able to bring healing. It's no less God. It just may not be as fancy what a lot of people believe. But let me tell you, when I pray for people, and if I come and pray for you in the hospital, I'm going to say, God, bring complete healing, whether by a miracle or by normal means. I don't think at that point you care which it is. You just want to be healed, and so we honor God for that. And so we come, and, and, and when Jesus, and then what happens, though, oftentimes, and here's the other question, but if he doesn't heal us, what does that mean? Because I will tell you, the majority of people that I've prayed for cancer and for other problems have not ultimately been healed. Most of them have gone, is it just because we don't have enough faith? I think that's an easy way out rather than just knowing your Bibles and understand what it's teaching. When God chooses not to heal, either by supernatural means or by natural means, then it means that he's trying to do something even more important. What he's trying to do is he is trying to get somebody to believe or even to believe more in Christ. See, a lot of us, we can't think of anything more important than the here and now, than here and now in the physical. We think it's the most important thing of all. In fact, Jesus is going to describe it's not the most important thing at all. The people, after he, he, commit, he, he performs all these miracles, they're going to say, oh, stay, stay. You can get away, if you just stay a little bit longer, every, every one of our ills in, in, in life are going to be taken away. Just stay. Jesus says, I can't. I'm sent to be able to preach the gospel and the good news to people so that they would believe. So what happens is, when God chooses not to, to, to uh, um, heal us physically, there's something spiritually that he wants to do. And it's a wonderful reminder that Jesus Christ has the power to do both. But you know as well as I do, if there's no physical strife, if there's no physical elements, if there's no physical sickness, if there's no physical problems, then oftentimes you and I aren't thinking about God at all. But God uses those things to draw our attention to our greater need, and that is our spiritual sickness and our spiritual death to be able to draw us. And he's willing to allow us to be sick and even die of that sickness here in order for us to be able to spend eternity there. The problem for us is we think too temporally when God has the big picture in mind. So there are three different types of authority that we see here. We see Jesus teaching authority. We see the authority over demons and we see his authority over sickness. But notice how he exercises his authority. It's all in one way. 
is through his word, through his word. Let me, let me show you this one more time. In verse 32, in verse 32, notice what it says. And they were astonished. We're talking about his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed what? Authority. Then we see again in verse 36, and they were all amazed when it talked about him casting out demons and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they came out. Then the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, the Bible says that he rebuked the fever. How did he rebuke it? By using his word. So, so his authority in every way that he, he lays that out and it plays out is always through the word of God, through the word in which he ultimately speaks. And again, I just told you this just a moment ago. This is why when Jesus comes, he's demonstrating his authority, yes, by casting out demons, yes, everything else, but primarily through the word that he preaches. And it's why he's gonna go out from here and he tells the people, I can't wait for you. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I have been sent for this. When Jesus came to change the world, he changed, he's going to do it primarily through the words that he spoke. And all, from the beginning of time, this, is how, this has been the greatest display as, as authority, has it not, through his spoken word? Think about the creation. How did he create the world? Did he create it by, because he had a fancy toolbox? No. It's because through his powerful word, he said, let there be light, and there was light. When he drew, when he drew uh, Lazarus back to life, how did he do it? Through uh, administering CPR? No. He did it by saying, come forth. And when he called you and I to life, and you and I were born again, and we became alive in Christ, and we were no longer underneath that bondage of sin and death and sinful oppression. Instead, God made us free and free unto him. How did he do it? Through his word, through the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Where do we see, if we're not seeing today God's power and authority on display primarily through the, the many healing miracles and through a lot of people having demons cast out, then where do we see it? We see it in the lives of every believer in Jesus Christ that submits their entire being to the Lordship of Christ and his word. Where people see the power and authority of Jesus Christ is when you and I's marriage that goes from garbage to a blessing because you and I submitted ourselves to God's word and God used it to change our hearts from the inside out. They see the evidence of God's authority when a young person who was rebelling against their parents, God finally gets a hold of them. They get saved and now they become a child that wants nothing more than to be able to submit to their parents. How in the world do they do that? Through the authority of the word of God. And so we are primarily about to be about this word. That's why every single week we were going verse by verse and chapter by chapter by preaching the word. Here, here's why. We can have a lot of programs and programs can be good. They can help you and be helpful and we can even teach the word of God in them. But the most important thing for you week after week after week is for you to be saturated in the word of God because that's where his power and his authority has the ability to be able to set you free and to be able to give you life. If I was a husband and I was concerned for my marriage, I'd find the best Bible studies I can finally find to be able to be underneath the teaching of God's word, to be able to rescue that marriage through me and my wife being radically transformed in the midst of it. I'd find a church that would preaching the word of God. I would get my kids. I'd be teaching them and saturating them every day in the word of God because why? The authority of God is what brings about, sets people free and makes them whole once again. When author wrote this, this point, 
He said, when Jesus came proclaiming the authoritative word, we need to do the same. He said, they turn into, because many churches make the mistake of making everything except for the authoritative word of God. They turn a church into a political agenda or an entertainment venue or a social, or a social project. Anything and everything other than what it was intended to be, a community that is gathered to hear and to submit to God's word. God's word. So before we take the Lord's Supper, this is where we find ourselves, is really with the decision, shall we submit to God's word or not? For some of you, you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. We're still waiting patiently. You know all the spiritual things. You even know what the gospel is. But the truth is, there's never been a recognition of the authoritative word of God, and you've never come to believe. But then there are many of us who are here that before we take the Lord's Supper, to make sure we take it in the right spirit, the truth is there are many of us who sit there and say, I'm not obedient. I'm just not obedient. And I don't even have to, this is what I love about the power of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't even have to, on PowerPoint, give a big list of all the sins that we're guilty of or what we're struggling with. The Holy Spirit does it for us, doesn't he? Because already, right now, the Holy Spirit is already beginning to move in our lives and begin to sit there and say, hey, look, I know there's a sin in this area. I know I've been struggling in this area. I know I haven't been doing this. What is the Holy Spirit calling us to do? He's saying, if you want the power of God to be unleashed in your life, then recognize his authority and submit to it. And he will bring healing and he will bring deliverance. That's how God works. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord. We just take this time right before the Lord's Supper to begin to just make sure that our hearts are right before you. God, would you bring some to faith? Would you bring us all to a deeper faith? This morning, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. I'm gonna be down here, and uh, I would love to pray with you. If you need prayer, if you wanna know more about this thing we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, I wanna share that with you. But right now, as Nick is singing, let's go ahead and do business with the Lord. Make sure our hearts are right in light of what we've just heard.